The following narration is from the book, Historical Collections and Accounts of Revival, by John Gillies, dealing with the subject of New England from 1705 to 1734. Introduction The Sad Decay of Vital Religion in New England After the Death of the First Planters The Complaints of Their Godly Ministers on That Account a reading from Thomas Prince's Christian History, Numbers 12, 13, and 14. Mr. Samuel Danforth, a pious and learned minister in Roxbury, in a sermon before the General Court of the Massachusetts Colony on May 11, 1670, being the day of election of magistrates, hath the following words, quote, Whether we have not in a great measure forgot our errand into the wilderness, is a solemn and serious inquiry, you have solemnly professed before God, angels, and men, that the cause of your leaving your country, kindred, and father's houses, and transporting yourselves and your wives' little ones, in substance, over the vast ocean into this howling wilderness, was your liberty to walk in the faith of the gospel with all good conscience, according to the order of the gospel, and your enjoyment of the pure worship of God according to his institution, without human mixtures and impositions. Now let us consider whether our ancient and primitive affections to the Lord Jesus, his glorious gospel, remain. Let us call to remembrance the former days and consider whether it was not then better with us than it is now. In our first and best times, the kingdom of heaven broke in upon us with a holy violence, and every man pressed into it. What mighty efficacy and power had the clear and faithful dispensation of the gospel upon your hearts! How affectionately and zealously did you entertain the kingdom of God! How careful were you, even all sorts, young and old, high and low, to take hold of the opportunities of your spiritual good and edification! ordering your secular affairs so as not to interfere with your general calling. How diligent and faithful in preparing your hearts for the reception of the word, laying apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, that you might receive with meekness the engrafted word, and purging out all malice, guile, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, and, as newborn babes, desiring the sincere milk of the word. How attentive in hearing the everlasting gospel, watching daily at the gates of wisdom and waiting at the posts of her doors, that you might find eternal life and obtain favor of the Lord, gleaning day by day in the field of God's ordinances and beating out what you had gleaned by repetition and conference. How painful in recollecting, repeating, and discoursing what you heard, wetting the word of God upon the hearts of your children, servants, and neighbors. How fervent in prayer to God for his blessing on the seed sown. Oh, what an esteem for Christ's faithful ambassadors in those days. How precious were they in your eyes, counting yourself happy in the enjoyment of a pious, learned, and orthodox ministry. What ardent desires after communion with Christ and his ordinances. What solicitude to seek the Lord after the right order. What fervent zeal against all manner of heterodoxies. What holy endeavor to propagate religion to your children and posterity, charging them to know the God of their fathers and serve him with a perfect heart, publicly asserting and maintaining their interest in the Lord and in his holy covenant, and zealously opposing those that denied the same. 
Then had the churches rest and were edified, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. Oh, how your faith grew exceedingly. You proceeded from faith to faith, from a less to a greater degree, growing up in Him who is your head, and receiving abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. Oh, how your love and charity towards each other abounded. Oh, what comfort of love, what a holy sympathy, weeping with those that wept and rejoicing with those that rejoiced. But who is there left among you that saw these churches in their first glory? And how do you see them now? Are they not in your eyes in comparison thereof as nothing? Is not the temper, complexion, and countenance of the churches strangely altered? Doth not a careless remiss, flat, dry, cold, dead frame of spirit grow upon us secretly, strongly, prodigiously? They that of ordinances are as though they had none. They that hear the word as though they heard it not. And they that pray as though they prayed not. And they that receive the sacraments as though they receive them not. And they that are exercised in holy things, using them by the by, as matters of custom and ceremony. Pride, contention, worldliness, covetousness, luxury, drunkenness, uncleanness, break in like a flood upon us, and good men grow cold in their love to God and one another." Quote. Number 2. The Reverend Dr. Increase Mather, in a treatise entitled Pray for the Rising Generation, printed in 1678, writes as follows, quote, Prayer is needful on this account, and that conversions are becoming rare in this age of the world. They that have their thoughts exercised in discerning things of this nature have had sad apprehensions with reference unto this matter, that the work of conversion has been at a great stand in the world. In the last age, in the days of our fathers and other parts of the world, scarce a sermon preached, but some evidently converted and sometimes hundreds in a sermon. Which of us can say we have seen the like? Clear sound conversions are not frequent in some congregations. The body of the rising generation is a poor, perishing, unconverted, and except the Lord pour down his spirit, an undone generation. Many that are profane, drunkards, swearers, lascivious scoffers at the powers of godliness, despisers of those that are good, disobedient. Others that are only civil and outwardly conformed to good order by reason of their education, but never knew what the new birth means, in quote. Number three. Mr. Samuel Torrey, pastor of the church at Weymouth, in his sermon entitled The Plea for the Life of Dying Religion, from Deuteronomy 32:47, Because it is your life, preached before the general court of the Massachusetts colony on May 16, 1683, being the day of their election, says, that there hath been a vital decay, a decay upon the very vitals of religion, by a deep declension in the life and power of it that there is already a great death upon religion, little more left than a name to live, that the things which remain are ready to die, and that we are in great danger of dying together with it. This is one of the most awakening and humbling considerations of our present state and condition. Oh, the many deadly symptoms that are upon our religion! Consider we then how much it is a dying, respecting the very being of it, by the general failure of the work of conversion whereby only it is that religion is propagated, continued, and upheld in being among any people. As converting work doth cease, 
so religion doth die away, though more insensibly, yet more irrecoverably. How much religion is dying in the very hearts of sincere Christians, by their declensions in grace, holiness, and the power of godliness. How much it is dying, respecting the visible profession and practice of it, partly by the formality of churches, but more by the hypocrisy and apostasy of formal hypocritical professors. How much it is dying under the prevailing power of those sins and evils which are utterly inconsistent with and destructive of the life of it. Those sins continuing and prevailing, religion cannot live, it must needs die. Quote. Number four. Dr. Increase Mather, in his book entitled The Glory Departing from New England, printed in 1702, writes as follows We are the posterity of the good old Puritan nonconformists in England, who were a strict and holy people. Such were our fathers who followed the Lord into this wilderness. O oh, New England, New England, look to it that the glory be not removed from thee, for it begins to go. O oh, tremble, for it is going, it is gradually departing, although there is that of divine glory still remaining, which we ought to be very thankful for, nevertheless much of it is gone. You that are aged persons and can remember what New England was fifty years ago, that saw these churches in their first glory, is there not a sad decay and diminution of that glory? How has the gold become dim, the most fine gold changed? Alas, what a change is there in that which hath been our glory! Time was when these churches were beautiful as Tertza, comely, as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. What a glorious presence of Christ was there in all his ordinances! Many were converted and willingly declared what God had done for their souls, and there were added to the churches daily such as should be saved. But are not sound conversions become rare in this day, and in many congregations? Look in the pulpits and see if there is such a glory there once there was. New England has had teachers eminent for learning, and no less eminent for holiness, and all ministerial accomplishments. When will Boston see a John Cotton and a Norton again? When will New England see a Thomas Hooker, a Thomas Shepard, a Mitchell, not to mention others? No little part of the glory was laid in the dust when these eminent servants of Christ were laid in their graves. Look into our civil state. Does Christ reign there as he once did? How many churches, how many towns are there in New England that we may sigh over them and say, The glory is gone. How many are there among us whose fathers in coming into the wilderness design nothing but religion, but they are not for another interest? There is sad cause to fear that greater departures of the glory are hastening upon us. For first, those sins which have provoked the Lord to remove his glory are not reformed. Our iniquities testify against us, and our backslidings are many. That there is a general defection in New England from a primitive purity and piety in many respects is so plain it cannot be denied. Secondly, there are ministers who are not like their predecessors, nor principal nor spirited as they were. Thirdly, the providence of God is threatening to pull down the wall which has been a defense to these churches. Fourthly, that which some have thought was a special design of providence in bringing choice people into this part of the world seems to be now over. It has been by wise and good men conjectured that the Lord's more peculiar design was that the world might see a specimen of what shall be over all the earth and the glorious times expected. Number 5. 
Dr. Increase Mather, in a preface to a course of sermons on early piety by some ministers of Boston, printed 1711, writes, I am now in the 83rd year of my age, and having had an opportunity to converse with the first planters of this country, and having been for 65 years a preacher of the gospel, I cannot but be in the disposition of those ancient men who had seen the foundation of the first house, and wept with a loud voice to see what a change the work of the temple had upon it. I wish it were no other than the weakness of Horace's old man, the laudator, temperous, acti. When I complain there is a grievous decay of piety in the land, and a leaving the first love, and that the beauties of holiness are not to be seen as once they were, and the very interest of New England seems to be changed from a religious to a worldly one. Oh, that my head were waters, and mine eyes a fountain of tears! And in a sermon in the aforementioned book on early piety, he further writes, The children of New England are, or once were for the most part, the children of godly men. What did our forefathers come into this wilderness for? Not to gain estates, as men do now, but for religion, and that they might leave their children in a hopeful way of being truly religious. There was a famous man that preached before one of the greatest assemblies that ever was preached unto seventy years ago, and he told them, I have lived in the country seven years, and all that time I never heard one profane oath, and all that time I never did see a man drunk in that land. Where was that country? It was New England. But ah, degenerate New England, what art thou come to at this day? How are those sins become common in thee that once were not so much as heard of in this land? Number six. Lastly, there is a following remarkable passage in a sermon of the late Dr. Cotton Mather at the public lecture in Boston, printed in 1706, entitled The Good Old Way. Quote, it is confessed by all who know anything of the matter, and oh, why not with rivers of tears be welled? That there is a general and a horrible decay of Christianity among the professors of it. The glorious and heavenly religion of our precious Christ generally appears with quite another face in the lives of Christians at this day than what it had in the lives of the saints into whose hands it was first of all delivered. The modern Christianity is too generally but a very shadow of the ancient. Ah, sinful nation! Ah, children that are corruptors! What have your hands done to defile and to deface a jewel which restored unto its native luster would outshine the sun in the firmament? So notorious is the decay of Christianity that whole books are written to inquire into it. The complaints of the corruptions that are become epidemical in the lives of Christians and little short of universal are everywhere, every day, wounding our ears. At last they are come so far that one of the English bishops has let fall this mournful passage were a wise man to choose his religion by the lives of them who profess it. Perhaps Christianity would be the last religion he would choose. And sadder yet, there has been a set of Protestants in the best island under heaven, Protestants who have made a profession of more than ordinary purity. There was a time when their behavior did much answer their profession. But I have lately read another insulting over them that these also have of later time almost wholly lost a reputation which mankind once allowed unto them. In these deplorable circumstances of Christianity, what shall be done? 
It is now past mere conjecture with me. I am now got up unto an absolute certainty that we are entered into that age wherein the primitive Christianity shall be revived unto astonishment. The enemies of it shall see it and be grieved. They shall gnash their teeth and melt away. Section 1 of the revival in Massachusetts in 1680, upon a solemn renewing of covenant with God and one another, of the revival in Taunton in February 1705. These are recorded in Prince's Christian History, March 5, 1794 and 5. Sirs, it was a most comfortable day, the 1st of March, when we renewed the Reformation Covenant, of which I suppose you have a copy by you already. Only we added an engagement to reform idleness, unnecessary frequenting houses of public entertainment, irreverent behavior in public worship, neglect of family prayer, promise-breaking, and walking with slanderers and reproachers and others, and that we should all in our families be subject to good order and government. It was read to the brethren and sisters in the forenoon, they standing up as an outward sign of their inward consent, to the rest of the inhabitants. In the afternoon, they standing up also when it was read, and then every one that stood up brought his name ready writ in a paper and put it into the box that it might be put on church record. The forenoon text was Hebrews 12.4 about resisting and striving against sin, the common enemy of us all. The afternoon text was Second Chronicles 29.10 we gave liberty to all men and women from sixteen years old and upwards to act with us and had three hundred names given in to list under Christ against the sins of the times. The whole acted with such gravity and tears of good affection as would affect an heart of stone, parents weeping for joy seeing their children give their names to Christ. And we had several children of the church in neighboring towns who came and joined with us in it. We have a hundred more that will yet bind themselves in the covenant that they were then detained from meeting. Let God have the glory. Yesterday fourteen were propounded to the church, some for full communion, others for baptism, being adult persons. All this calls for prayer and humble walking with God and hope in His mercy. Taunton, March twentieth, 1704 and 5. Sir, I have now yours, and have sent you two letters this week. I have little to add, and no time to enlarge. But my time is spent in daily discourse with the young people visiting me with their doubts, fears, and agonies. Religion flourishes to amazement and admiration, that so we should be at once touched with soul affliction, and this in all corners of the place, and that our late conversion should be attended with more than usual degrees of horror, and Satan permitted to wrestle with them by extraordinary temptations and assaults and hours of darkness. But I hope the deeper the wound, the more sound may be the cure, and I have little time to think of worldly matters, scarce time to study sermons as I used to do. But fine God can bless mean preparations whenever he pleases, that such shall be most cried up and commended, which I have had scarce time to methodize. I think sometimes that the time of the pouring out of the Spirit upon all flesh may be at the door. Let us be earnest in prayer that Christ's kingdom may come, and that being an instrument of good to others, I may not myself be a castaway.
Number three, we shall next give those particular instances of the revival of religion at Northampton in the days of the late Mr. Solomon Stoddard, as Jonathan Edwards gives them in the two following paragraphs written in 1736. Quote, I am the third minister that has been settled in this town. Mr. Ebenezer Mather, who was the first, was ordained in July 1669. He was one whose heart was much in his work abundant in labors for the good of precious souls. He had the high esteem and great love of his people, and was blessed with no small success. Solomon Stoddard, who succeeded him, came first to the town the November after his death, but was not ordained till September 11, 1672, and died February 11, 1728, so that he continued in the work of the ministry here from his coming to town near sixty years. And as he was eminent for his gifts and grace, so he was blessed from the beginning with extraordinary success in his ministry and the conversion of many souls. He had five harvests, as he called them. The first was about the year 1679. The second was about 1683. The third about 1696. The fourth about the year 1712. The fifth and last about 1718. Some of these times were much more remarkable than others, and the ingathering of souls more plentiful. Those that were about 1683 and 1696 and 1712 were much greater than either the first or the last, but in each of them I have heard my grandfather say the greater part of the young people in the town seemed to be mainly concerned for their eternal salvation. Number 4. There was also a remarkable instance of the revival of religion in the year 1721 at Wyndham in Connecticut Colony. The account is contained in a preface to a sermon preached by Mr. Adams of New London on a day of thanksgiving at Wyndham for the late remarkable success of the gospel among them, in which preface, it is said, it seems to be something necessary that some account should be given of the occasion of the ensuing discourse, and it may, through the blessing of God, be useful unto many, when they shall hear of the grace of God unto others, and how he hath been mercifully pleased to visit his people. Wyndham is a town of about thirty years standing, where the Reverend Mr. Samuel Whitting hath been employed in the work of the ministry from the beginning. God hath been pleased to make him a very rich blessing among them, and doubtless many will have reason to bless God forever, and that their lot hath been cast to dwell under his ministry. Not only has he seen the town flourishing to that degree in this short space of time, is that two other societies are already sprung out therefrom, but he has had the comfort to observe that many living and serious Christians have been born there. But of late there has been a greater stirring than ordinary among the dry bones. Many have been awakened to consider an inquiry, what a great deal of earnestness, what they should do to be saved. Persons of all ages in some of whom there was but little expectation, have come together to seek the Lord their God, so that within the compass of about half a year, there have been fourscore persons joined to their communion, and more are still dropping in. Could the reverend pastor have been prevailed upon so far to have gratified the public, we might have been entertained with the knowledge of many particulars, which ought not to be forgotten, while the Holy Spirit like the wind that bloweth where it listeth, hath been divided to every one severally as he will in this day of their visitation. But at present we must be content with this short and imperfect account. 
In the meantime, it is surprising to see what an happy alteration there is made when God is pleased to bless a dispensation of the gospel and the institutions of his house and confirm his word in the mouths of his servants. Now the eyes of the blind are open, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the dumb are taught to speak, and they that were spiritually dead are raised unto life. To behold obstinate sinners that went on frowardly in the ways of their own heart, yielding themselves unto God, such as were careless and unconcerned about their own souls, now brought to the last distress and concern about what they shall do to escape from the wrath that is to come, and such as were fond of their several vicious courses, now quitting them with shame and indignation, that they may endeavor for the future to lead their lives, not according to the lusts of men, but the will of God. Shall it not from this time be said, What hath God wrought? Surely it is a work of him that at first commanded the light to shine out of darkness, and called the things that were not as though they were. Now the work grows easy and delightful in the hand of the Lord's servants. Their former sighs occasioned by their unsuccessful endeavors are changed into praises, and they almost forgot that there are other sorrows and burdens that are upon them for joys that people are born unto the Lord. Now they that have happily escaped out of the snare of the fowler, admire the wonders of free grace, which remembered and visited them in their low estate. They are brought forth into the light of life, and having their doubts and fears gradually dissipated, they go on rejoicing for the consolation. Their fellow Christians, who were in Christ before them, receive them with open arms, and many thanksgivings are offered up unto the Lord. Now things put on the same face of gladness and delight as once they did at Samaria, when Christ was preached with success. Acts 8, verse 8. And there was great joy in that city. It was upon this occasion that a day of thanksgiving was appointed and observed by the distinguished people, when the following discourse was delivered, and is now by their pressing and repeated instances published to the world if it may be any way serviceable to influence them to stand fast in the Lord, or stir up any to mind the things that belong unto their peace, there will be the less occasion to apologize for the defects and imperfections that may attend it. But oh, that the same good spirit from on high were poured out upon the rest of the country! For what pity is it that the single fleece only should be wet with the dew of heaven, while the rest of the ground round about remains? comparatively dry and may we not say with the psalmist it is time for thee lord to work when iniquity gets head and serious religion is so sadly decaying throughout the land insomuch that there is scarce a sufficient number rising up to make good the ground of them that are dropping off the stage continually especially when we consider also how much short they come of their good spirit and we are almost at a loss to find christians among christians it is true God is calling loudly to us by variety of providences. The means of grace are yet in our hands, and the ordinances are among us. But where is the God of the ordinances? And where are all the wonders which our fathers told us of when the arm of the Lord was powerfully revealed, and people more generally believed the report of the gospel? May the Lord please to revive his own work, and help us to remember, hold fast, and repent, and do our first works. May his good spirit be poured out more plentifully 
upon both ministers and people, that the one may preach more plainly, boldly, and with an uncommon concern for the glory of God and the good of immortal souls, and the others may attend with the more earnestness and care to the things that are spoken, lest at any time they let them slip. And may that good spirit of piety and devotion which sometimes, through the blessing of God and the influence of His grace, begins to kindle in this or that place, spread like a flame throughout the land, to purge away our dross and raise up a seed which shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. For this let every one that is godly pray unto him day and night, since with him is a residue of the Spirit, and he delights to be stirred up by the prayers of his people. Let us take with us words and cry in the language of the prophet Isaiah, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake is in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Isaiah 51, 9 Who can tell but that as he hath begun to pour out of his good spirit, so he may please to perfect the good work and cause a good favor of his knowledge to spread far and wide. Let us as they that wish well to the cause of serious and practical religion, seeing the times are drawing nearer, wait upon the Lord, till he shall appear for our help, bringing salvation, when all difficulties shall be removed, the mountains be leveled and made plain, and whatsoever letteth shall be forever taken away, when he that hath laid the foundation shall bring forth the headstone with shouting, while the standard by are prepared with joyful acclamations to cry grace, grace unto it. E. Adams New London, September 12, 1721 In the application of the sermon, Mr. Adams says, page 24, quote, I would now take leave to apply myself more particularly to the people in this place. A good work hath been of late wrought among you. Many have been awakened, convinced, and as we ought charitably to hope, effectually brought home to God. The neighborhood hath rung of it, and it has been told for a memorial of divine grace. Good people everywhere have rejoiced upon the hearing of it, and glorified God in you. Satan hath been alarmed and enraged, as we may well think, to see such an encroachment upon his kingdom, to behold such large waste and spoil made of his goods. This is doubtless the finger of God. To him the praise of it is entirely due, and you well have well done to set apart this time for your public thankful acknowledgment of this and other mercies. Allow me, therefore, to apply myself particularly, first, to them who have been happily wrought upon in this day of grace and pouring out of the Spirit, number two, to them who have been passed over and suffered to remain still in their former hardness and security, Number three, to all the godly and Christian people in this place. Under this last head, he says, Be more conformed in your way by all the great things which the Lord has been doing among you of late. I trust that you are already well rooted and established in the faith, so that nothing will easily move you from your steadfastness. Yet now, through the mercy of God, you have an abundant confirmation of your faith. You see what great virtue and efficacy there is in Christian doctrine, that it must needs be the word of God, seeing it produces such great and good and marvelous effects. 
You have a sensible and convincing proof before your eyes that there is something in religion and have no further need of miracles to confirm it. When you see the doctrine of Christ triumphing remarkably over the ignorance, the mistakes, the carelessness, and the wickedness of men, you have reason to draw that conclusion which sometimes Jacob did. Surely the Lord is in this place. Surely his word is good. The ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them. Let nothing for the future shake your steadfastness, and be not at all moved by the confidence of foolish men, if you should be assaulted by them. To divert you from that Christian course wherein you have been educated, and take that counsel in First Peter 1.13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end, for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And thus he concludes, Let us all give thanks unto him, whose mercy endureth forever, who has ridden forth prosperously upon the word of truth, and has made so many people willing in the day of his power. May he still go on to subdue the people under him, that the hearts of the fathers may be brought down into the children, that we may still see the good of his chosen and rejoice with the gladness of his inheritance. And oh, that the Lord would arise and have mercy upon Zion, that the time to favor it, the set time may come, that the whole earth may be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Number 5. The next instance of religious concern we meet with is in the year 1727 after the earthquake of which Thomas Prince says, quote, In the night after the Lord's Day, October 29th, 1727, there was a general and amazing earthquake throughout New England and the neighboring provinces, which, with several repeated shocks afterwards in a number of parts of the land, was a means of awakening many to serious thoughts of God and eternity, and of reviving religion among us, which we shall give in the words of Dr. Sewell and the Reverend Thomas Prince, Webb, and Cooper of Boston, in their preface to the third edition of Mr. Edwards' narrative, mentioning some remarkable effusions of the Spirit of Christ in other ages and parts of the world, they go on as follows, quote, Nor have we in these remote corners of the earth, where Satan has had his seat from time immemorial, been left without a witness of the divine power and grace. Yea, we need look no higher than our own times, to find abundant occasion to celebrate the wonderful works of God, Thus when God arose and shook the earth, his loud call to us in that amazing providence was followed, so far as man can judge, with the still voice of his spirit, in which he was present to awaken many and bring them to say, trembling, what must we do to be saved? Yea, as we hope to turn not a few from sin to God in a thorough conversion. But when the bitterness of death was past, much the greater part of those whom God's terrors affrighted gave sad occasion to remember those words of Psalm 78, 34, and 36, when he slew them. Then they sought him, and they returned and inquired early after God, and they remembered that God was their rock, and the high God their Redeemer. Nevertheless, they did flatter him with their mouths, and they lied unto him with their tongues. And there has since been great reason to complain of our speedy return to our former sins, notwithstanding some hopes given of a more general reformation, quote. And in the account of the revival at Boston, it is further said concerning this earthquake, 
But after all our endeavors, both our security and degeneracy seemed in general to grow until the night after the Lord's Day, October 29, 1727, when the glorious God arose and fearfully shook the earth through all these countries. By terrible things and righteousness he began to answer us as a God of our salvation. On the next morning, a very full assembly met at the North Church for the proper exercises on so extraordinary an occasion. At five in the evening, a crowded concourse assembled at the old church, and multitudes unable to get in immediately flowed to the south, and a few minutes filled that also. As Lieutenant Governor Doomer's motion, who was then our commander, the Thursday of the same week was kept as a day of extraordinary fasting and prayer in all the churches in Boston not merely to entreat for sparing mercy, but also to implore the grace and Spirit of God to come down and help us in a sincere repentance and returning to Him. And as the houses of public worship were greatly crowded, the people were very attentive. The ministers endeavored to set in with this extraordinary and awakening work of God in nature, and to preach His word in the most awakening manner, to show the people the vast difference between conviction and conversion, between a forced reformation either in acts of piety, justice, charity, or sobriety, by the mere power of terror, and a genuine change of the very efficacy of the Holy Spirit, to lead them on to true conversion and unfeigned faith in Christ, and to guard them against deceiving themselves. In all our congregations, many seem to be awakened and reformed, and professing repentance of their sins and faith in Christ, entered into solemn covenant with God, and came into full communion with our several churches. In ours, within eight months after, were about eighty added to our communicants. But then comparatively few of these applied to me to discourse about their souls, till they came to offer themselves to the communion, or afterwards, the most of those who came to me seemed to have passed through their convictions before their coming to converse with me about approaching to the Lord's table, though I doubt not but considerable numbers were at that time savingly converted. Number six, lastly, there was a considerable revival in the end of 1730 and the three following years at Freehold in the province of New Jersey under the ministry of Mr. John Tennant and his brother, Mr. William Tennant, who succeeded him, of which take the following account from a letter to the Reverend Mr. Thomas Prince at Boston, October 9, 1744, R.D.S. Quote, I desire to notice thankfully the late rich displays of our glorious Emmanuel's grace in subduing, by his word and spirit, multitudes of sinners to himself. Most gladly, therefore, do I comply with your request. But I must be general, having never made any memorandums in writing, yet I trust I shall be strictly true, for the Lord hates a false witness. The settling of this place with the gospel ministry was owing under God to the agency of some Scots people that came to it, among whom there was none so painful in this blessed undertaking as one Walter Kerr, who in the year 1685, for his faithful and conscientious adherence to God and his truth, as professed by the Church of Scotland, was there apprehended and sent into this country under a sentence of perpetual banishment, by which it appears that the devil and his instruments lost their aim in sending him from home, where it is unlikely he could have ever been so serviceable to Christ's kingdom as he has been here. He is yet alive and blessed be God. He is flourishing in his old age, being in his 88th year. But to return 
the public means of grace dispensed here, were at first for a season too much like a miscarrying womb and dry breasts, so that the major part of the congregation could not be said to have so much as a name to live. Family prayer was unpracticed by all, a very few accepted. Ignorance so overshadowed their minds that the doctrine of the new birth, when clearly explained and powerfully pressed upon them, is absolutely necessary to salvation. By that faithful preacher of God's word, Mr. Theodorus Jacobus Frelinghaus, a Dutch minister, and some other English ministers who were occasionally here, was made a common game of, so that not only the preachers but professors of that truth were called in derision newborn and looked upon as holders forth of some new and false doctrine. And indeed their practice was as bad as their principles, namely loose and profane. In the year 1729, their ministers removed from them, and they were so grievously divided among themselves that it appeared improbable they would ever agree in the settlement of another. In this miserable condition they lay, and few among them had either eyes to see or hearts to bewail their woeful, wretched circumstances. Thus they seemed to be cast out as a prophet Ezekiel represents it in the 16th chapter of his book and the 5th verse. But the Lord, who is rich in mercy, of his unexpected and unmerited love, passed by them, lying in their blood, and said unto many of them since that day, Live, and live they shall to all eternity. About this time my dear brother John, who is now with Christ, was licensed as a candidate for the sacred ministry, a youth whom the author of every good gift had uncommonly furnished for that important trust. To him application was made by some of the congregation, entreating that he would supply them for a time to which, with the leave of the presbytery, he consented. But ere he went, he often told me that he was heartily sorry he had engaged to go among them, for it seemed to him that they were a people whom God has given up for their abuse of the gospel. But the Lord's thoughts are not our thoughts, for when he had preached four or five Sabbaths in the place, which was the whole time he tarried among them at first, the Lord so spoken and stirring them up to search the scriptures, whether these things were so, and withal enabling him to preach to them with such uncommon freedom and earnestness, that he told me he was fully persuaded Christ Jesus had a large harvest to bring home there, so that though they were a poor, broken people, yet if they called him, he would settle among them, albeit he should be put to beg his bread by so doing. April the 5th, 1730, the congregation unanimously called him, which he, accepting of, was ordained the 19th of November following, and continued with them until April 23rd, 1732, and was then translated to glory. During this short time, his labors were greatly blessed, so that the place of public worship was unusually crowded with people of all ranks, and they seemed to hear generally as for their lives. Yea, such as were wont to go to those places for their diversion, namely to hear news or speak to their tradesmen, and so on, even on the Lord's day, as they themselves have since confessed, were taken in the gospel net. A solemn awe of God's majesty possessed many, so that they behaved themselves as at the bar while in his house. Many tears were usually shed when he preached, and sometimes the body of the congregation was moved or affected. I can say, and let the Lord alone have the glory of it, that I have seen both minister and people wet with their tears as with a bedewing rain. It was no uncommon thing to see hearts would break 
but without any public outcry, and some have been carried out of the assembly, being overcome as if they had been dead. Religion was in the general subject of discourse, though they did not all approve of the power of it. The Holy Bible was searched by people on both sides of the question, and knowledge surprisingly increased. The terror of God fell generally upon the inhabitants of this place, so that wickedness, as ashamed in a great measure, hid itself. Some of the jolly companions of both sexes were constrained by their consciences to meet together, the men by themselves and the women by themselves, to confess privately their abominations before God and beg pardon of them. Before my brother's death, by reason of his bodily weakness, I preached here about six months, in which time many came inquiring what they should do to be saved, and some to tell what the Lord had done for their souls. But the blessing on his labors, to the conviction and conversion of souls, was more discernible some months after his death than at any time in his life. Almost in every neighborhood, I cannot say in every house, there were sin-sick souls longing for and seeking after the dear physician Jesus Christ, several of whom I no wise doubt has since that time sincerely closed with him, and are healed. Glory, glory to his holy name, be given forever and ever. Amen. Some time after my brother's decease, the congregation called me to labor among them statedly, which I accepted and was ordained October the 25th, 1733. Thus my Lord sent me to reap that on which I had bestowed but little labor. May this consideration be blessed to make me thankful and humble while I live. I must further declare, to the honor of God, that he has not yet left us, although awfully provoked by our crying crimes, but ever since that more remarkable outpouring of his spirit, has continued to bless his own ordinances to the conviction, conversion, and consolation of precious souls, so that every year some, more or less, have been in a judgment of charity added savingly to his mystical body, to his holy name be all the glory. In the meantime I would have it observed that two or three years last have of afforded fewer instances of this kind than formerly. However, through grace some have been lately awakened, who are even now seeking Jesus' sorrowing. While the number is of those who have tasted the sweet fruits of the Redeemer's purchase in a saving manner, in his congregation, I cannot tell. It is my comfort that the Lord will reckon them, for he knows who are his, and indeed none, but the omniscient God is equal to the difficult province of determining certainly concerning the internal estates of men. Yet I may be bold to say that to all appearance, both old and young, males and females, have been renewed, though none so young as I have heard of in some other places. Some Negroes, I trust, are made free in Christ, and more seem to be unfeignedly seeking after it. But after all that the Lord has been pleased to do among us, I am persuaded that the greater number by far are yet in the gull of bitterness and bond of iniquity. This makes me sometimes ready to wish that I had in the wilderness the lodging place of a wayfaring man, that I might leave my people and go from them, or rather that my head were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for them.
Such as have been converted were every one of them prepared for it by a sharp law work of conviction, and discovering to them in a heart affecting manner their sinfulness both by nature and practice as well as their liableness to damnation for their original and actual transgressions. Neither could they see any way in themselves by which they could escape the divine vengeance, for that their whole life past was not only a continued act of rebellion against God, but their present endeavors to better it, such as prayers and so on, were so imperfect that they could not endure them, and much less they concluded with a holy God. They all confessed the justice of God in their eternal perdition, and thus have been shut up to the blessed necessity of seeking relief by faith in Christ alone. It would be endless to mention the evils they complained of, namely ignorance, unbelief, hardness of heart, hatred against God, his laws and people, worldliness, wanderings of heart in duty, pride, sensuality, sloth, and so on. With what grief, shame, and self-loathing have I heard them bewail their loss of time and neglect of the great gospel salvation. Those that were communicants before their awakening have with trembling declined that their unworthy partaking grieve them more than anything ever they did. It is almost incredible to retell the indignation that such awakened sinners expressed against themselves on account of their sinfulness. They looked upon themselves to be more mere monsters of nature, and that none were worse, if any so bad. Others signified that they could not find their pictures out of hell, and that they were just companions for the damned and none else. Let it be here noted that some who have expressed themselves in the manner I have mentioned were before taken for believers both by themselves and others being sober and regular in their walk. The sorrows of the convinced were not all alike, either in degree or countenance. Some have not thought it possible for them to be saved if God would vindicate the honor of his justice. But these thoughts continued not long at a time, blessed be God. Others thought it possible but not very probable because of their vileness. The greatest degree of hope which any had under a conviction that issued well was, uh, may be, peradventure, or maybe God will have mercy on me, said the sinner. Some in coming to Jesus have been much rent with blasphemous and other horrible temptations, which have turned their moisture into the drought of summer, who now through pure grace serve God without such distractions and gladness and singleness of heart. The conviction of some has been instantaneous by the Holy Spirit applying the law to the conscience and discovering to the eye of the understanding, as it were, all their heart deceits very speedily, by which they have been stabbed as with a sword. But the conviction of others has been in a more progressive way. They have had discovered to them one abomination after another in life, and from thence were led to behold the fountain of all corruption in the heart, and thus were constrained to despair of life by the law and consequently flee to Jesus as the only door of hope, and so rest entirely on his merit for salvation. After the aforesaid sorrowful exercises, such as were reconciled to God, have been blessed with the spirit of adoption, enabling them to cry, Abba, Father. But some have had greater degrees of consolation than others, in proportion to the clearness of the evidences of their sonship. The Lord has drawn some out of the horrible pit of distress and darkness and brought them into the light of his countenance. He has filled their hearts with joy and their mouths with praises. He has given them the full assurance of faith. Others have been brought to peace in believing, but they have not had such a great amount of joy. 
They go on in a religious course trusting in the Lord. The way they have been comforted is either by the application of some particular promise of Scripture or by a soul-affecting view of the way of salvation by Christ as free without money and without price. They were enabled to behold the valuable mercies of the covenant of grace, freely tendered to the vilest transgressors, that were poor in their own eyes, sin-sick, weary, and wounded, together with the ability and willingness of the Lord Jesus to relieve them from all the evils they either feared or felt. With this way of salvation their souls were well pleased, and thereupon have ventured their case into his hands, expecting help from him only, who has given them both peace and rest. Yea, filled some of them with joy unspeakable and full of glory. I remember not of any that received their first comforts otherwise. Some few have retained their confidence in God ever since without any considerable questionings of their state, although they tasted the comforts of it. But the most by far have questioned all and doubted. It was a delusion. This, I suppose, is generally owing to the remains of corruption which blot the evidences of grace in good men so that they can hardly read them, and particularly to the awful sin of unbelief together with the prevalence of a legal spirit. But however distressing it is to them to feel their imperfections, it helps to persuade me that they are regenerate, else it would not be so. So sin would not be their chief burden in a general way. However, our Lord who comforts those that are cast down even the wonderful Counselor teaches them that he not only saves even such as after it find a law in their members warring against the law of their minds, which too often causes them to do things they would not, and he enables them to reflect upon what they have and do daily experience, and compare it with the evidences of grace in the Word of God. The blessed God does likewise give them renewed tastes of his love, even after missteps, and thus they are established in faith and hope so that they have a prevailing persuasion of their interest in Christ, except it be in times of desertion and temptation, with which some are more exercised than others, for reasons best known to a sovereign God. Doubtless, sir, you will desire to know what effects this work produces on the minds and manners of its subjects. I answer, they are not only made to know, but heartily to approve of the great doctrines of the gospel, which they were before either ignorant of or averse to at least some of them, so that they do harmonize sweetly in exalting free, special, and sovereign grace through the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, being willing to glory only in the Lord, who has loved them and given himself for them, an offering and a sacrifice of a sweet-smelling savor. I cannot express with what satisfaction I have heard some speak of the new covenant method of salvation. They have spoken with such affection and clearness as I have thought was sufficient to convince an atheist that the Lord was their teacher. The alteration in some from almost gross ignorance to such clear gospel light, and in others from such corrupt principles as the Papists and Quakers hold, to the believing acknowledgment of the truth, none but he that made the understanding could effect. The approve of the law of God after the inward man is holy, just, and good, and prize it above gold. They judge it their duty as well as privilege to wait on God and all the ordinances of his institution, although they expect to merit nothing by it. A reverence for God's commanding authority and gratitude for his love conspire to incite and constrain them to a willing, unfeigned, 
universal and unfainting obedience to his laws. Yet they declare that in everything they come sadly short of what they ought to do and bitterly bewail their defects. But blessed be God, they are not discouraged in their endeavors to reach forward, if by any means they may apprehend that for which they are apprehended of God. And in all things they acknowledge that they ought to look to Jesus as the author and finisher of faith, whose alone it is to work all good in them and for them, to whom be glory forever. They are not unmolested in their way by enemies, both from, within, and without. Yet they profess that the comforts which they receive do more than compensate all their labors, were there no good to be expected hereafter. They have not all made a light proficiency in the Christian course, neither are they all equal in religious endeavors, nor any at all times alike lively. They are sometimes obstructed in their religious progress by coldness and deadness, but this the blessed Jesus removes at times by the influence of his Holy Spirit. Then, oh, then their hearts are enlarged, and they run the sweet ways of God's commandments with alacrity and delight. They love all such as they have reason to think from their principles, experience and practice are truly godly, though they differ from them in sentiment in lesser things, and look on them to be the excellent of the earth. They rejoice in Zion's prosperity, glorifying God on that account, and feel a sympathy in her sorrows. They do prefer one another before themselves in love, except under temptation, which they are ready to confess and bid well, when they are themselves generally accounting that they are the meanest of the family of God and unworthy of the blessing, yea, the most so of any living, all things considered. In a word, the sapless formalist has become spiritual in his conversation. The proud and haughty are made humble and affable. The wanton and vile and sober are temperate. The swearer honors that venerable name he was wont to profane and blesses instead of curses. The Sabbath-breaker is brought to be a strict observer of holy time. The worldly now seeks treasures in the heavens. The extortioner now deals justly, and the formerly malicious forgives injuries. The prayerless are earnest and incessant in acts of devotion, and a sneaking self-seeker endeavors the advancement of God's glory and the salvation of immortal souls. Through God's mercy we have been quite free from enthusiasm. Our people have followed the holy law of God, the sure word of prophecy, and not the impulses of their own minds. There have not been, that I know of, among us any visions except such as are by faith, namely clear and affecting views of the new and living way to the Father, through his dear Son, Jesus Christ, nor any revelations but what have been long since written in the sacred volume. It may not be amiss to inform you that many who have been awakened and seen for a time to set out for Zion are turned back. Yea, of those who have been esteemed converts, some have made shipwreck of faith and a good conscience. Though glory to God, there have not been many such. Yet some of them who have thus awfully apostatized were highly esteemed in the church. By this our good and gracious God has given check to too high an esteem of our own judgment concerning the spiritual states of others, an evil which is too common among young converts, and awfully warned all that think they stand to take heed lest they fall. Many, I have caused to fear, have been hardened in their impieties and unreasonable prejudices against vital religion by the backslidings of some professors. Woe to the world because of offenses! But in the meantime, blessed be God, wisdom is and will be justified of her children. This, sir, is as particular an account as I can at present give of the Lord's work in this place. 
If my Lord will accept it as a testimony for him, it will be a greater honor than ever I deserved. I need your prayers and earnestly desire them. O oh, beg of God that I may be faithful to the death and wise to win souls. I am with all due respects, yours and the dearest Jesus, William Tennant. Freehold, October ninth, 1744. Attestation to the preceding account. We the subscribers ruling elders and deacons of the Presbyterian Congregation of Freehold, having had perfect knowledge of the circumstances of this place, some of us from the first settling of it, and others of a long time, do give our testimony to the truth in general of the above letter of our reverend pastor. May the Lord make use of it for carrying on his glorious work begun in these lands, and make the name of the dearest Lord Jesus glorious from the rising to the setting sun." In quote. Freehold, New Jersey, October 11, 1744. Signed by six church members.